Time is but the stream I go a-fishing in. Henry David Thoreau. Pass me a sandwich, Ed Chigliak. <laughs> <laughs> you better check your line there, Dr. Fleischman. Yeah. yeah, I guess I'm caught on those weeds again. Come on. Get a little side-to-side -side action there. Yeah, maybe I need a little better angle. Oh. Whoa. That's a fish. Whoa! A lake is the landscape's most beautiful and expressive feature. It is Earth's eye, looking into which the beholder measures the depth of his own nature. The fluviatile trees next to the shore are the slender eyelashes which fringe it, and the wooded hills and cliffs around are its overhanging brows. The ponds. Walden. For the first time it occurred to me this afternoon what a piece of wonder a river is, a huge volume of matter ceaselessly rolling through the fields and meadows of this substantial earth, making haste from the high places by stable dwellings of men in Egyptian pyramids to its restless reservoir. One would think that, by a very natural impulse, the dwellers upon the headwaters of the Mississippi and Amazon would follow in the trail of their waters to see the end of the matter. Journal, September 5th, 1838. A river is superior to a lake in its liberating influence. It has motion in indefinite length. A river touching the back of a town is like a wing. It may be unused as yet, but ready to waft it over the world. With its rapid current, it is a slightly fluttering wing. River towns are wing towns. Journal, July 2nd, 1858. All of these passages are written by Henry David Thoreau. And I gotta say, they're really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, really great writer there, it turns out, that uh, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, and the, you know, the, the quote that leads us into that soundbite from the beginning, um, time is but the stream I go efficient in. I also like Ed Chigliak's quote there, you know, his, his uh, self-quoting himself, pass me a sandwich. Uh, <laughs> yeah, gotta love seeing this, this gang fishing, you know, that's a pretty cool... Pretty cool sight. I mean, I'm sure we get them hanging out every once in a while, but it's just nice to see. Yeah, definitely. I think the thing that I really like most about these three passages that I read was the last one where mm. uh, Thoreau was talking about how the river is superior to its lake in its liberating influence. So in literature and in most other mediums, but predominantly in literature, a river symbolically means a lot of things. But one of the most famous ones are its depiction of journeys. Huckleberry Finn, Heart of Darkness, Siddhartha's River, like all of those are famous instances of a journey taking place from beginning to end. And we're seeing that theme definitely play out in today's episode, which is what we're going to be talking about because we are the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Charles and I'm joined here with my co-host Lee. My name is Lee and I'm a huge fan of Northern Exposure. I started watching the show in high school over, geez, like over 10 years, over a decade ago. And Charles, uh, I'm sure you're, you're also quite a fan now of Northern Exposure, but you're a new fan to the show because every episode that we talk about, it's your first time watching the episode. And we're in season five now, so you've got a pretty good grasp of what's going on here. Uh, you know, closing in towards like the last quarter of season five. And then we'll be on to season six, which is the final season. So kind of like in the end game. To, oh, well, not yet. We've got, we still got a lot of episodes. <laughs> uh, we still haven't even hit our hundredth episode, but um, what is there? It's like 
I always forget the number, but it's something like 130, somewhere around there, episodes of Northern Exposure. Oh, only 110. Uh, so we're, we're, we're getting there slowly but surely. But um, let's see. An- another angle of this podcast that we do is uh, part of our mission statement is that we like to expand the reach of this show, which is largely forgotten. It's a show from the 1990s. And... Um, you know, it's never been made available for streaming. Really, the only way you can watch it uh, is by DVD. Now they make Blu-rays, which are also kind of difficult if you're in the United States because you might have to find like a region-free Blu-ray player. Uh, yeah, it's it's tricky. But uh, anyway, our way of expanding the reach of the show is each episode of the podcast, we invite on a guest, someone who has never seen Northern Exposure, maybe has never heard of it, and get their outside opinion, their take on this episode. Does it stand up uh, on its own? Uh, what do they think of this sh- concept as a show? You know, so um, we'll see how it holds up. That'll be towards the end of the podcast. We'll bring on a guest and see their thoughts. But uh, today we're going to be talking about season five, episode 18 of Northern Exposure. It's called Fish Story. And I'll just go ahead and list the credits, Charles. We've got the director, Bill Dahlia, who has directed for Northern Exposure before. He directed the episodes War and Peace, Only You, A Hunting We Will Go, and Northern Lights. Now this episode, uh, you may recognize that surname. He's the father of Chris Dahlia, the comedian. <laughs> um, but uh, he's also directed lots of episodes of television and is still directing television. Uh, and I think he's got a couple feature films as well under his belt. The writer of this episode, Jeff Melvoin, who wrote the last episode that we covered, uh, Charles, which was episode 17, Una Volta in L'Inverno. And in that episode, we talked about his many, many credits. He's been writing a lot of episodes for Northern Exposure. Uh, finally, the air date, March 14th, 1994. Uh, yeah, Charles, what do you think about about this this episode, how it starts out. Yeah, I think this is probably my favorite episode so far of season five, and it makes a strong... It's a good one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's could like, be a strong contender for best one. Like, yeah, just the best so. episode of Northern Exposure. This oh, is fantastic. Wow. Of the entire series. Wow, yeah. Yeah. I, this was such... Yeah, this is a great episode, and I definitely... Okay, it's the episode called Fish Story. I've seen... I've obviously seen this series before, so I remembered, okay, this is the one... You know, without spoiling it too much, this is the one with the fish. Uh, but so I remembered all that kind of storyline with the rabbis, you know, maybe mild spoilers. I'm, I'm assuming if you're listening to the podcast, you've watched the episode already. Um, yeah, I just kind of forgot how, you know, top tier of an episode that this is. Yeah. So there's like levels to it. So there's always like that thing where they do, where there's subtext behind it. And they kind of gently poke and prod at it, but they want us to explore and imbue meaning into it in order to find out what subtext they're talking about. On this one, they go a level beneath that. They present us straight up with yeah. what's happening on there, but then they go a level below it. And I think that's where like uh, talented writers thrive. That's where they eat at because <laughs> it takes real skill to navigate from the surface level to the underground to the under of the underground. Uh, and that's what they're doing throughout all of these like very symbolically laden imagery, uh, choice of words, the interconnecting plot lines of journeying and trying to cling on to the past. Mm-hmm. It's all really well done. I was very pleasantly surprised by the strength of this episode, not only by the direction the writing and all that, but also the acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's hop right in, I think. Uh, we start off the episode uh, with... 
uh, Passover tease. This is going to be a Passover episode. Oh, you know what? I forgot to check this out. Let's look at it because the mar- the air date was March 14th, 1994. I wanted to check when Passover, uh, what date Passover was in 94. Okay, so Passover in 1994 uh, started on Saturday, March 26th and ended on Sunday, April 3rd in 94. So they were, you know, they were jumping the gun a little bit, but, you know, this is definitely the season for Passover. So I think it fits right in. And uh, yeah, the scene that uh, I should talk about now is in Joel's cabin. It's between Joel and Maggie. And she brings up the idea that she was, you know, planning to maybe surprise him with a Passover Seder. And Joel is... um, you know, he's, he's kind of against it. I think he relates it to being like, you know, it's, it's as if Maggie, if I were to like set up an Easter egg hunt for you and like that, that might be a little awkward, but you know, what's the harm with that, I guess. Um, but yeah, there's something definitely under Joel's skin about the whole idea of having a Passover Seder. You know, Maggie suggests we can invite your friends, but there's something about it. Maybe that it's hard to tell at the beginning of the episode. At first I was like, is this uh, something he's maybe has a scarred past with, or does he just have like a strange connection with his uh, religion? Well, we've seen previous episodes like Kaddish with Uncle Manny, where we sort of get a, a bit of that. Like he feels kind of like disconnected from his religion, but um, still wants to cling on to that tradition. What did you make of that opening scene there? Yeah, well, I think you hit the hammer on the nail right there because mm-hmm. it is Joel just clinging on to tradition right there. He's used to celebrating it with other people that are predominantly Jewish of faith. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Maggie is now encroaching onto this, even though that she's his girlfriend, he finds that discomforting because it's a departure from what he's used to. And we're going to see that be played out in all of the other storylines right there. This idea of like clinging on to the past and having to let go, having to explore and continue the journey all the way to the end. Um, and I think this one sets it up. Yeah. Like, are you saying he needs to open it up to not just like the way it was done in his childhood, but open it up to Maggie and to his friends? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to get too far ahead because typically at this point in our podcast, we'll start, we'll take the episode. Normally we'll have three plot lines and we choose one to, to sort of analyze and, uh, you know, we do one at a time. Uh, so I'm not suggesting we continue with Joel, but in the next scene when they're fishing, it's the soundbite that we played earlier. Um, it does seem a little bit, uh, it's not in the soundbite, but there's a moment when Joel is complaining about, you know, Maggie wanting to do this Seder. Uh, you know, he's not, he's kind of talking indirectly. I think he says something like, you know, women are so strange. It's, it's so nice to just be hanging out with the guys. You know, isn't it weird how women just like pretend to like football to, uh, to hang out with you? And to me, that was definitely, I guess what you would call today, like gatekeeping Passover. Like he doesn't want to, like, <laughs> obviously Maggie is very interested. And um, yeah, I don't know. It seems like something that Joel should share, obviously. Right. So if we're going to relate this to what's happening on the major plot line, which is Joel catching... What is the name of that thing? Oh, yeah. They call it, um, let's see, I wrote it down and how they pronounce it, Gunakaday. But I think they give it a nickname, Goonie. Goonie. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to relate it to Goonie. The Goonie is like something that's been here since prehistoric times. It's something that mm. lived deep down and they're now finally fishing it back up. So it's akin to something being trapped in a glacier. It is now being right. released. So you can relate this to like 
old views that are still frozen in time. Joe has a very uh, gender-specific, uh, arguably extremely sexist way <laughs> of looking at things. And we can see that those types of uh, patriarchal ideas are going to be, well, melted away. Yeah, would also say we'll get there, but the the rabbi in the episode also has a whole, you know, almost monologue about this idea of gender separation in religion and things like that. But let's not get too deep into that because I'm sensing, Charles, maybe we should talk about one of the other plot lines first. We've got Ruth Ann's plot line and also Holling and Chris plot line. Yeah, I'm not too sure which one to go on. It's definitely one of those two, though. Let's go with Ruth Ann. She was going to follow immediately after the title credits. She's in her store. It's late at night. And Chris is looking for those chips that he's been dreaming of. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, she is out of those chips. Um, I think she suggests like creamed herring and stone chips. Yeah, well, so Chris is looking for uh, salt and vinegar. And he's like, uh, all she has is barbecue potato chips. Ruth Ann's like, look, like if you really wanted these, you could have planned ahead. It's always last minute with you, you know? Uh, and then Chris is like, all right, I'll do the barbecue. But then he changes his mind again and wants to do the cream tearing and like the stone ground wheat thins or, or whatever it is. And so as he's like, you know, waffling back and forth, we just get a shot on Ruth Ann, which is like slowly pushing in on her as she's watching Chris. And like, she literally just put the, you know, closed sign. She closed the register. Like she's not, she's gonna have to open everything back up to, to make this transaction. And, uh, this expression that she has, as we push in on her, we can tell that she's bothered by this. And, you know, as this being sort of like the first scene in her plot line, we can guess that this might, you know, uh, unravel into a full story here. Right. And I think you honed in on the right thing. The idea that the customers are really indecisive on what they want. And we're going to see that play out in the very next scene, which is where she has a ton of customers in there and they're mm -hmm. all looking for various items. I think someone is looking for a camera, a disposable one, so that he can take a picture of Goonie. Another woman is looking for a specific type of jerky. Various items are being sold out. And the customers don't know what to do. They're kind of just asking and being like, well, don't you have like any more in stock? Aren't there like some sort of things right there? People are pushing and shoving. <laughs> and I think as a whole, that is the tinder for the fire that goes on within Ruth Ann. It sparks it out and she decides to close up shop. She pushes everyone out. I think if we read more into it, it's not the idea that she runs a grocery store that we should be focusing on. I think it's the idea that Ruth Ann is now being, I, I, at least to me, I think she's being pushed on all of her buttons. Like it's almost mm -hmm. like other people are deciding what she should do rather than the opposite. Yeah. It's I, maybe in the sense that like they have all these demands uh, that she's not able to meet. Like this is very last minute. Like she runs her store how she does and she can't, you know, have everything stocked at every moment. Like I think with Chris, she said like the salt and vinegar chips, she gets another shipment on Thursday. So, you know, this is how it works and how it has worked for Ruthann, but it's causing a lot of frustration so much so that, as you said, she closes up the shop. I was like, dang, she was about to make a lot of money. She's got a lot of customers, <laughs> but I guess that's not important to her. She has her, uh, she has the way she wants to run her store and people are just 
you know, rifling through all her stuff right now. Right. I, I really like the shot that comes afterwards whenever she pushes them out of the store. So all of the customers leave and then she goes and shuts the door, locks it and then leaves. And then the camera remains stationary right there. And then Shelly and Chris mm-hmm. move into the frame. Yeah. They're now taking the place. The camera doesn't need to move because they can just come slide right in from, you know, into the frame. And they're talking about the baby. And uh, then Shelly says like, hey, isn't that your motorcycle, Chris? Chris is like, oh, yeah. And it's like, isn't that Ruthann on the motorcycle? It's like, oh, yeah. And she just takes off right there. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I think I saw on Twitter recently, uh, like out of context, Northern Exposure or something. They did like the a four picture deal where it was like, <laughs> hey, isn't that Ruthann? Yeah. Isn't that your bike? And Ruthann's like driving away on the bike. It's like, yeah, <laughs> she, you know, so, so what happens here, Ruthann? steals Chris's motorcycle and just goes for a joyride. Is that actually her? Uh, you know, probably not. So there is a, there definitely are shots of Ruthann on the motorcycle as it's moving. I'm thinking the way they captured that is like, she is sitting on a motorcycle, but the motorcycle is itself sitting in like a trailer and that trailer is being pulled by like a picture vehicle so, or like a, um, moving vehicle. So, you know, she's not actually having to drive it. Typically that's how it works with any vehicle, um, not just motorcycles. Like usually the actor is never really driving that way. You know, it's a lot safer if they can focus on acting and camera and stuff like that and not have to drive the car. But that doesn't mean that every movie is made that way. There's probably plenty of movies where actors are really (laughs) driving the car. It's not that difficult, but definitely there's a safety um, issue there. Yeah, I read a story about how Danny Trejo, he actually doesn't do any of his own stunts. And the reasoning behind it was like, he himself is not a trained professional in that stuff. Like as much as he would like to appear uh, extremely strong in front of the camera, he realizes that like if he gets injured in one of these uh, stunts right here, then he puts down production for like weeks on end. People are out of a job. They're out of money. So he puts away his ego to the side and just lets the stunt people do their stuff right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's like a really healthy way of looking at it. I'm not saying that like necessarily every single person who does the stunt is, you know, egomaniacs or anything like that. But I, I think that's like a great way of looking at it and separating responsibility and duties and being like, all right, we're, we're making a movie. It's mm-hmm. inherently like fake. Yeah. We don't have to like pride myself to be like, I did all of my own stunts. Like, this is amazing. It's like, all right, <laughs> it doesn't really matter that much. Um, let's let the trained professionals do it. Yeah. And that's like an industry too. Like that's people's jobs. As you're saying, like it could be very well possible that Danny Trejo maybe has friends who are stuntmen, you know, it's like, let them work. Uh, but even without that, it's like, yeah, that's, that's people's jobs. They can handle it. You know, they get paid to do that. So, but anyway, uh, Ruthann has, uh, yeah, she's, she's stolen Chris's motorcycle and has kind of like just left town and with, uh, with Ruthann gone, I think, uh, we get a, a brief moment, um, I wanted to touch on with Chris and K-Bear where he announces that the town has banded together to create sort of a food supply hotline. Uh, as it turns out, Ruthann's store is like the only general store or like the only grocery store within a hundred mile radius. So, uh, a lot of people are being, um, put out of some supplies, which is kind of, a um, I wonder, like, do you think Ruthann's store supplies, I guess it's a town of, what did we say, 839, somewhere around there. Yeah, I guess she's, does she she have the capacity to 
to supply all those people every week? Or, you know, are, are these people in town also getting shipments and supplies from other um, sources? I wonder. I think it's mostly general groceries, right? Because they have other stores that are for other needs. Mm -hmm. So like, um, I don't know, like let's say like shoes or something like that. Like I don't think you necessarily have to go to Ruthann's store. But then again, I have seen them go into our store to buy specifically shoes. (laughs) Um, I think that like... Uh, there's definitely other stores. Like there's no way that she is to purveyor of every single thing right here. It's just that like, particularly for like chips and salsa or whatever, like basic <laughs> needs like that. Uh, she is the main person. Got it. Um, yeah. What's really fun in the scene is that they're introducing old characters again. So, uh, I recognize Ivory Springer. He's a oh, farmer, right? Yeah. Where was he? What was he doing here? He was uh, supposedly, according to Chris, he was saying like, okay. if you are price gouging, then a pox on your house. Because he was selling, I think he was selling oh, like Ivory butter. Ivory was doing the, yeah, he was doing like the butter or the milk or something. He was, so he was price gouging, uh, allegedly. Uh, allegedly. He <laughs> might be price gouging right there because he's taking advantage of the situation that Ruthann's store isn't there anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, uh, so, you know, things are kind of, um, the, the rug has been pulled out from underneath Sicily. They, they're scrambling to fix this supply chain issue and uh, but back to Ruthann she's uh, found herself at this uh, bar the last call bar I don't know exactly if we know what city or town she's near uh, but you know she's away from Sicily now she's having a meal in the bar and complaining about the food to the waitress like ordering her to bring her back the steak well prepared and you know don't don't just reheat these fries I want a fresh batch uh, so she's kind of playing tough when uh, a group of bikers approach her um, and they you know they seem to pick up on um, you know, take a liking to Ruthann because she's got this pretty amazing Harley uh, motorcycle outside. Uh, I just wanted to also mention one of these like biker thugs is the actor that played Thule in that episode, Heroes. Do you remember Chris's yeah. mentor, Heroes? Or uh, Chris's yeah. mentor, uh, Thule? <laughs> They're yeah. bringing him back. Yeah, his name was the actor's name. Sorry, let me look that up. Mickey Jones. Uh, so we've, we've seen him previously as... Uh, the, you know, passed away, the deceased Thule. But what do you think about this scene? Yeah, so we're introduced to the Diablos right here. The rough and tumble gang of bikers that initially you think they're like, yeah, they're hooligans. Like, Mm -hmm. they're snapping at waiters. They're saying that they run certain parts of the town. You know, they kind of seem like a bad influence right here. But uh, as per usual, Northern Exposure kind of like always flips the script and always paints these characters as uh, being like way too intellectual. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. Because what we're going to see next is Ruthann taking up their offer of riding throughout the night. They're going to be burning rubber with the Rattlers. That's who they're going to be meeting up with. That's what they need to paint this town red. So they get off onto their motorcycles and they're waiting at the junction for the rattlers to come and while we're waiting for them you can see each one of them kind of like slowly lose that facade of them being bikers they're talking about their kids getting oral dental surgery they're talking about uh certain like taxes that are being passed and seeing if it's going to affect them predominantly on individuals that are affluent i believe like the <laughs> medicare taxes one and ruthann has to explain that if you don't make over one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year then it shouldn't affect you but we can see 
just from here that this is a group of people that have families. Yeah. They're now rooted into something else. They are no longer what they were in the past, yet they're still trying to remain like that because, you know, they're on their motorbikes. It's like in the middle of the night. They're still trying to run with the rattlers. Right. Yeah. They, they're just kind of at the, you know, at this point they, they reveal themselves to be kind of like normal adults, you know, but they, they have that past that they're uh, connected to. That's just, that's also maybe just part of their culture too. They can be both, um, which is interesting. And I think uh, we also get here in this scene, sort of the leader of the Diablos gets a phone call from, I'm assuming the leader of the Rattlers uh, who, who calls in to say, Hey, we won't be making it out tonight. Cause uh, we've got to get elective surgery tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, more just like, this is old age. Uh, this isn't like wild, uh, lifestyle of, of youth and biking across the country, freedom and rebellion. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. He even says it at the end. He says like, we're still the Diablos, right? We're still the Diablos, right? They're like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, they go off and ride into the darkness. And they continue to sort of like a convenience store where I think their main their main drive for well, getting... Oh, hang on. Yeah. I think that uh, right before we get there, I think we should talk about the town hall scene that's discussing... Oh, yeah. Ruthann's okay. meet. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> immediately after that scene, we're going to see the ramifications of Ruthann leaving, which is going to be found in this town hall, hosted, of course, by Maurice... He's back. Uh, he, yeah. He's always hosting the town halls, man. Yeah. Until like he like the actor injured himself uh, and he was like not present for the past couple episodes. And so they brought in the mayor. So literally last episode had the mayor of Sicily. And now we have a town hall meeting. Uh, Maurice is uh, fully healed. So I guess they're just like, <laughs> you know, even though the mayor should be running this town hall meeting, I, I guess it makes sense. She seems like. Mayor Edna kind of seems like she does things more for her own, uh, you know, will. She wouldn't be bothered by gathering a town hall meeting, Uh, though I guess, you know, if she's similarly affected by this uh, supply chain shortage, then maybe she would show up. But anyway, Maurice is back. Goodbye, Adna. Maybe we'll see her again. But um, (laughs) yeah, Maurice is trying to hold a vote here. Basically saying something like, well, I wanted to ask you this. Do you know anything about Patco? Uh, I know it now. <laughs> yeah. What, so what is that? <laughs> so reading a little bit from an NPR interview and from the Wikipedia itself, I knew a little bit about this. Like okay. I was vaguely familiar because of another television show that I had talked about it. Hmm. But Patco or the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization was a trade union in the U.S. that operated from 1968 into its decertification in 1981 following an illegal strike that was broke by the Reagan administration. So what was simply happening was that like PACO was this uh, trade union and they wanted certain benefits. They thought they were being overworked. They thought that they weren't getting enough pay. And so they striked. They were like, okay, we're not going to work until you give in to our demands. And we pretty much control the skies. Like without us, your airplanes can't land safely. You're going to be, (laughs) we're going to be putting a halt to that whole operation right there. So After Paco disobeyed a federal court injunction that ordered them to end the strike and return to work, a federal judge kind of found them in contempt and they were all ordered to pay uh, various amounts of fines. I think the president was having to pay like a $100,000 fine and Mm. other individual members had to pay $1,000 fine for each day that they were on strike. And then on August 5th, Reagan put out a statement. He was saying like, if you don't show up to work by here, 
you are fired if you don't cross that picket line and get right to work. And they didn't. Uh, Reagan fired all 11,345 striking air traffic controllers who had ignored the order and it banned them from federal service for life. He flipped the narrative on strike breaking. Strikers were no longer the sympathetic ones. Now, they were selfish lawbreakers screwing over regular Americans. Suddenly around America, strike breaking became the thing to do. Striking copper mines in Arizona? Fired. Striking paper workers in Maine? Fired. Meat packers? Bus drivers? So many strikes in the 1980s were broken to the point where unions realized that employers wanted them to strike so that they could fire them and replace them with non-union workers. And if you realize that your boss wants you to strike so that they can fire you and rehire somebody else, that is going to make you less likely to strike, the main piece of leverage unions have. The unique thing that Reagan was able to do was that he didn't have to have fully trained air traffic controllers taking over the strikers' positions. He could like source from other people, like military controllers, for example, for them to fulfill into that job. So as long as he reduced capacity down to like 50% of the flights, and then he had like some other people that are like vaguely new how to do air traffic controllers, he can kind of still keep the boat afloat. He can keep planes still flying. So the strikers, even though they refused to come to work, didn't necessarily completely shut down the entire operation. Mm -hmm. Reagan realized that like, okay, if you get like enough people to kind of fill in the shoes, plug enough holes, you can kind of keep the operation floating just enough so that I make the strikers look really terrible mm -hmm. right there. And like that was his like, that was his linchpin right there. Uh, if you look at the number of strikes, you can see that like there were so many of them after World War II when unions were flying high. And then the numbers started to trend downward slowly. And then suddenly in 1982, there's that huge drop off. That is the wow. air traffic controller strike. So basically in Northern Exposure, what they're relating it to is that Maurice is saying that Ruth Ann is running a public good. Mm -hmm. It is a service that she needs to fulfill. And her refusing to do that is tantamount to Patco refusing to provide a service. Right. So he wants Ed to take it up. He like Ed's kind of like the person that kind of can keep the boat afloat. So right. that's what he's doing <laughs> like see. that Reagan strategy right there. And Ed puts his foot down. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. Ed is still clinging on to the past, just like all the other people. <laughs> and he refuses to go down and he just leaves. Yeah, he's got the key to Ruth Ann's store, but he expresses basically that uh, he can only use the key by Ruth Ann's command. It's like when she says so, you know, only I can only use this key if, if she says I can. Uh, and when the town is going to take this vote, basically it seems pretty clear. Everyone at this town hall meeting is like, yeah, we need this store. Like even I think Ed is like, you, Chris, you too? Like Chris is uh, arguing like I, I could go for some like some beers or something from the uh, general store. <laughs> well, like it's funny because right before he argues and says like, right. we have to think about our personal freedoms, like the right for people to feel secure in their persons, their houses, their papers. He's saying like, think about the uh, individuality and the liberty that you have of like when you want to stop working and when you should be forced to keep working. Right. But he eventually bends and says like, <laughs> you know, I want some beer too. Yeah, beer sounds good. And so Ed is like, no, you won't make me and like runs out of the town hall. But I think that's a pretty clutch move because he's got the key. Like in, as soon as he runs, Maurice is just kind of like, well, 
Okay. You know, he's not going to, Maurice isn't even going to like yell after him because he's like, he knows there's nothing he can do. Ed has the key. Uh, and I think later we see like a moment where Ed is like guarding the store like a hawk almost, like he's sitting outside. Actually, it's when Ruth Ann returns, I think, but we'll, we'll get there because um, she is still out and about with the Diablos. And uh, yeah, okay, so as I was saying before, they go to like a convenience store. I think their intention is to go to buy a get well soon card for that, for the guy who's doing the uh, elective surgery. Uh, the other, the member, I guess, of the Rattlers. And uh, they kind of mill about this convenience store. But basically we can see sort of their enthusiasm it's, it's starting to crumble like this you know this revolt this rebellion of being this crazed like a uh, wild biking gang it's just not the same I'm, i got the line here it's just not the same without the rattlers like they're yelling back and forth uh with this very kind of like nervous uh you know cashier at the, at the convenience <laughs> store yeah, uh, I thought it was really curious that they were buying greeting cards. Um, you've seen 500 Days of Summer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, there's that pivotal scene where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character kind of freaks out on the idea of greeting cards because that's where he works. He writes greeting cards in order to sell the idea of um, Valentine's Day or Christmas or Mother's Day and Father's Day. And eventually he loses it and says, like, you know, it's these greeting cards. We're selling people like a false idea, just like the movies that he used to consume. He, he assumes that like romance is this two dimensional thing. And uh, the way that I'm trying to relate it into this one is that like, if we overanalyze this scene a little bit right here, we can see that like, you would presume the bikers to be, well, bikers. But mm-hmm. we see in this scene that, like, you know, they're buying medication for their sty, the hair. <laughs> yeah, he's um, got a, uh, sorry, the guy has an eye patch, which you think is, like, you know, he lost an eye, but he just has, like, a, a, a sty, and he's trying to get, like, some more medication to put on it. Yeah, you see them talking about all these various uh, problems that only affect, like, the middle class right there. So they're not what they appear uh, within the confines of a greeting card. You know, they moved on beyond that. They moved beyond the borders. Yeah, we do get, uh, I think, a more of an investigation into this with, uh, you know, obviously this is like, this storyline is intercut with a lot of other s- stories going on. But when we come back, they're still in the convenience store, bodega. Now they're eating frozen yogurt. And, um, you know, Ruth Ann talks about how, Actually, I think it's in an earlier scene when she says, like, she's been in Sicily longer than she has been anywhere else. And in this scene, she says she was looking for an escape from Portland to, you know, Sicily was her escape. And now she just basically feels trapped in a job in a convenience store, much like where they are now. You know, like she's like stuck behind uh, the the counter, I guess the, the counter. Yeah. Sorry. And. It's cool because th- I think this is what you're getting at, Charles, when like Northern Exposure likes to sort of flip the script and then these Diablos who seem like a wild bunch are actually like, you know, very expressive with their philosophical ideals. And they're all talking about, you know, what are we rebelling against? What is there left to rebel against? Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, just the idea of they talk about you know, there's no more open road or frontier, you know, left. 
now you know now all everything has been has been driven and uh they talk about how their fashions that were a product of revolt is now just sort of common culture like people doctors uh, businessmen wear like similar fashions and even now motorcycles are uh so expensive that you know these people who are trying to clash with the upper class would never be able to afford a motorcycle, which is the symbol of freedom that they hold on to. So I, I think it's cool. The idea of, of how, how can you revolt now when all of your options of expression are just normal? Right. Yeah. Really well said right there. Yeah. They talk about like in the wild ones where they're saying like, oh, yeah. says, what do you got? Like, what do you got the rebel? And he's like, I'm rebelling against everything. But the thing is, is the like, if you're rebelling against everything, then you're rebelling against nothing. Like you're simply just <laughs> yelling at that point. I think it's really curious how they're talking about this line, how like the middle class are actually trying to uh, take on this image of something that are definitely not. Mm -hmm. um, they're subscribing to this belief that like the, the motorcycle people are the people that are like having the most freedom or maybe they're like, they look quote unquote cooler. Like they're not stuffy mm -hmm. yet. I mean, predominantly it is. It's like super stuffy to like just try to curate an image and a look right there. Maybe that kind of fell into like the daily vocabulary of the time because I know like in the 70s and the 60s around there, uh, there was something called the Super Cub made by Honda. Mm -hmm. And they had an ad that was very famous. It said, you meet the nicest people on a Honda. And it was ran directly against the Harley Davidsons, like that rough and tumble hooligans that we riding around the motorcycle. The Honda Super Cub is like an extremely bare, minimalistic bike, super famous in Asia. They mm -hmm. still ride it. it. It's actually the most produced vehicle in the entire world. Wow. Uh, it's really fascinating in my opinion. But the Honda Super Cub was like, it might have presented like this opinion of like very sterile traveling that to other people, maybe after a couple decades, they were tired of that. They were wanting to rebel. They were like, all right, let's go buy these Harley Davidsons. Let's look cool. But, right. you know, uh, it's just it's just a costume that they're wearing right there. And for these bikers, while they're not, you know, I, I believe that they were true blood motorcycle people right there. You can see that they're still kind of just wearing the facade now that they've already traveled all the frontier there is to see. It's all history. So the only thing you have left really is to see the journey to the end. You don't have to keep spinning your wheels. Yeah. Ruthann, I wrote, I like this quote from her in this scene. Um, she says, the major thing I'm rebelling against these days is my arthritis. And then all the bikers laugh. But uh, I also wrote down this other quote. I think one of the, one of the Diablos says, what's so bad about feeling good? And I don't know if you, maybe you can help me with this, Charles, but I think it's, I think he's, they're saying that um, basically in response to like, okay, everything that we rebelled against, we've kind of become now in a way. And so, you know, like we're, we're sort of blending in now to what we were maybe rebelling against in the past. And, you know, they talk about changes in tax codes and, uh, you know, their daughter's orthodontist appointment. Now they, they schedule all their bike meetings in a planner. Like they have to set up a date in the future <laughs> that works their lifestyle. So, yeah, I don't know. I think what I'm getting from this scene, and maybe you can help me shape this as well. Maybe you have another point of view, but it seems like Ruthann wanted to 
you know, rebel against her service job only to realize that there's no use fighting against it or it's a, I, I don't know, this maybe is probably the wrong message to take from it. Feels I like, think it's like, yeah, go ahead. I, I get what you're trying to say right here. Uh, and, and I think if I wanted to expand on it, I would say like, it's the natural course that she's trying to fight against. She's saying that like, oh, you know, the mm. only thing I rebel against is my arthritis. But that comes for everybody once you get to that age. Um, a daughter growing up, that's inevitable. Um, a tax system that actually change. Tax systems change very rarely. Mm -hmm. For that to even change documents the passage of time. So mm. I, I think that what they're trying to say is they're like, things change, but that's, you know, so what? Maybe they're good changes. The bikers remarked that like, I like living this way. It's not like the bikers are like super unhappy with the way that their lives turned out. It's not yeah. like they're complaining throughout the entire episode. They're just simply trying to revert back to a time because that's just maybe they, they like that idea of it. But they also acknowledge that, you know, it, it's not so bad uh, a following course and just going along with the river. And I, I think that's why it's such a good episode. Like, that's a really good thing to take away from it. I think that we talked about this one time. I don't even remember the episode. It might have been like burning down the house, maybe. I, I can't remember. It was one episode where it almost seemed like they were saying that the idea of living a middle-class life was tantamount to death. Like mm -hmm. it was a terrible idea. Whereas, I mean, depending on where you are in life and what goals and values that you're looking for, maybe it's not. Like maybe it is to some people, but like not to everybody. Like that can't yeah. be a universal truth. And I think on this episode, they're demonstrating that like it's not like the worst thing ever for some people. And I, that's why I really like it. Yeah, that was burning down the house. That was uh, Maggie's mom who finally like divorced uh, Maggie's dad. And she talked about, you know, being trapped in a picket fence, like middle class life, upper middle class. Um, and yeah, we did talk about that, Charles, on the podcast, how it's like, you know, that's not, it doesn't have to be bad. And I'm, I'm glad now, and I'm sure you are, Charles, that in this episode, it is sort of celebrating that middle of the road type uh, of life, you know, that we've, that Ruthanna's found herself in maybe now. And uh, I definitely like that take a lot more where we're working in that theme of sort of living in the past and accepting the changes that happen over time. So for Ruthann here, it would be maybe more of like, you know, she was stuck in her ways of how she liked to run her store. And that was not you know, necessarily able to always meet the demands of a customer, uh, at such short notice. So, I, I mean, this is, we, this episode nowhere suggests that Ruthann is going to change what she's doing, but I think she uh, is able to accept, um, when things don't work out to her plan, at least, you know? Right. I, I know it seems like <laughs> we're always trying to like, go against the bohemian lifestyle right there. I'm not trying to suggest that that is the wrong option. It's just like, you know, that's always romanticized. So we're trying to say like, you yeah, know, why can't we just like, that can also be, shit, you know, having that lifestyle. Like sometimes there's, yeah, you got it playing devil's advocate. I yeah. Guess. Like I, I acknowledge that it's not all glamorous. Like it's a grass is greener type of situation right here. But yeah, we, we can see this all come to a culmination where Ruthann returns and Ed's guarding the store like a hawk, like he said. And she's happy to return and to flip the sign, to mm -hmm. flip it until further noticed and to close and to return back to her ordinary life of selling items behind a counter. Yeah. I think that's pretty much it. It's a pretty short scene, right? She just, she literally walks up and he's like, all right, let's do it. Let's open up. <laughs> and they go back inside. <laughs> 
but that's cool. I really liked that. Uh, that excursion. I also liked how Chris was like pretty much cool with this the whole time. Like he's at first he was caught off guard. And then like when we see him next, he's like, yeah, Ruthann is doing her Kerouac thing now. So, uh, you know, I think he's like, she'll come back at some point. (laughs) He's not too mad about it. It seems. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, let's rewind the episode back and talk about another plot line. I'm guessing that we want to say Joel and the rabbi is the last one since that's the most impactful scenes. So I guess that leaves us with Hauling and Chris. Right. So Hauling uh, has a has sort of a, a storyline with Chris, but it starts with Hauling alone. I guess Shelley's there for sure. Uh, Hauling is painting. He's doing paint by numbers. And it does look really good. I mean, like if you didn't tell me it was paint by numbers, I mean, I got the Blu-ray now. So I guess if we you know really looked at it close, you can kind of see. But it sounds like, you know as any painter might do with paint by numbers, uh, you know, you do, you follow the numbers, but you might also do some extra shading. It seems like, um, hauling is choosing to deviate sometimes from some of the color recommendations. Like he chooses a darker shade of green perhaps for certain things. Uh, it looks good. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have known, um, if I wasn't looking very close, but uh, Shelly is very supportive of this, and I think she suggests that they need to hang it up downstairs. And um, I guess if you don't mind me moving to the next scene, it's it's when Holling is hanging up this new painting, and Maurice is nearby, and he immediately starts criticizing. He says things like... Um, you know, this isn't art, it's paint by numbers. And he calls paint by numbers uh, therapy for the artistically challenged. It's what they prescribe for cretins in day rooms. He's basically like bullying Holling here and kind of laughing at him, trying to like pretty severely downplay this product that Holling has created. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's fine if Holling likes to do paint by numbers. You don't really got to drag him so low. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> he's obviously like, you know, like Shelly says, he's a little bit jealous of the, t- the the time and the talent that he's investing into it. Mm-hmm. What Maurice is suggesting is that like you're following an instruction and therefore when you're following it, you're not actually expressing any artistic talent or skill or expression and therefore it cannot be called art. What you're doing is simply just like emotion. Yeah. That's it. There's no like creative engine running there. You're just following a rule or something. Right. Which is like wrong (laughs) as we see. I'm glad like they realize that. And um, it's strange, but also like, I guess it's like not too strange that Maurice is the one that's saying this because it seems to me that like if we transported Maurice back down to like the 1910s, 1920s, he would have lost his mind against like surrealism and Dadaism (laughs) art, uh, all those like performance arts. One of like the most famous ones, Marshall Duchamp's Fountain, which was just like a common toilet displayed as an art piece. It openly disrupted the prestigious art exhibits of the time. Mm -hmm. It was like the idea of bizarre absurdity running against the status quo was ridiculous it was a counterculture against the enlightenment movement which championed gridlock reason and logic i think that maurice would have looked at this and you know just went bananas i mean like this is an art this is just like a common toilet but like art is defined in some way by the time in which it lives in so it it made sense like it, it did become like a great piece of art that was reflective of the times 
And, you know, to like bring it all back together right here, here's really to say like, what is art and what isn't art? Like, as we'll get later into the episode, like the process in which Holling channels this is super important to him. And, you know, if it's important to him, then that's fine. Right. Who are we to like, you know, if it keeps the rain out of your eyes, helps you keep going forward. And who are we to say that you can't do that? Yeah. And I mean, also, I mean, I, I think that's the, that's the number one. I would also say secondarily, a small bullet point. I think the painting looks fine. You can hang that up. Like it's, just, <laughs> it's like, like I said, like, I guess if you got close enough, you could be like, oh, that's paint by numbers, but it's still like the finished product looks pretty, um, pleasing. I don't know. But yeah, I think this is more about, um, Holling's process and Holling, like getting in touch with this, um, the process of painting, which he's really enjoying. And let's just roll into the next scene from which I've pulled a soundbite. Okay, so to set up the soundbite, Holling has come to K-Bear to speak with Chris. Actually, he's coming to give Chris his paints. He's given up painting and he thinks maybe Chris could use the paints. And, um, you know, they, they get they get into this conversation like, what what's the deal? Why are you, why are you getting over this um, this passion that you just had? No matter how much I put into my paintings, I don't think that'd ever be what you call art. What's art, Holling? Huh? Is it Da Vinci art? Dada art? If uh, you wrap up the whole Reichstag in toilet paper, is that art? Well, I can't give you a complete definition, but I think it'd be something that Maurice would be willing to give good money for. Yeah, well, you're starting to scare me because if that's art, then I gotta get a whole new gig, you know? Why, would he come down and, and dump on your work? You know, I only I only started painting because I had time on my hands. But with the babysitting and all, but the more I got into it, the more I thought, well, maybe I've got a little talent. Oh, now you don't. <laughs> it was like a bucket of cold ice water being dumped on my head. All right, you got a very basic problem, Holling. You're confusing product with process. Most people, when they criticize, whether they like it or they hate it, they're talking about product. Now, that's not art. That's the result of art. Right? Art, to the degree of whatever we can get a handle on it, I'm not sure we really can, is a process. Right? It begins in here, here with these and these. Right? Now, Picasso said the pure plastic act is only secondary. What really counts is the drama of the pure plastic act. That exact moment when the universe comes out of itself and meets its own destruction. Uh, well, I'd still like people to like my paintings. I like that. I mean, the the conversation continues, but we're talking about process and product and Holling's on board, but he's also like, you know, I want people to like, also like the product too in the end. Uh, but, but Chris is convinced like, you know, we have to kind of see it in a certain way to understand that, you know, I think Chris is more of the mind of like, it's all process. But I think ultimately, you know, at least you have to understand it's not all product. It's, you know, process is probably what you what you're gaining enrichment from as an artist. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that art is made by people and for people. So when you look at a piece, you naturally want to subscribe to it, some sort of belief that you wouldn't be able to understand it at all, that it somehow possesses otherworldly characteristics in which you look at it and you're like completely stunned. But like really the interpretation is down to you. Um, I think that cultural context is extremely important in which the piece was made, like kind of what Chris is saying, like, you know, there's a whole process behind it right there. But also, like, if you look at it and it instills certain feelings within you, then those are all valid as well. If it looks blue to you, then anything could be blue, whether it's an apple or a rabbit. So 
what I'm trying to say here is that like, I think it's important for Chris to say that like the process matters as well. I don't think he's wrong, but I also think that like, that's not like a universal truth. So like hauling and saying like, I would like people to like my end result as well. I think that's also equally as valid. Yeah. And I think by the time we get to the end of the storyline, we sort of have a nice marriage of the two um, philosophies. But for now, Chris is going to guide hauling uh, into this new mindset, perhaps. I like the the button at the end of this scene. Chris is supportive and comforting. He says to Holling, hey, we're buds. We'll work it out. And so they're going to, you know, Holling and Chris are going to hang out and do some art, which is pretty cool. Right. Before we get there, there I just want to say, like, how freaking cruel is that for Maurice to put <laughs> Holling down right. like that? Because it's not, yeah. I understand if, Holling was bragging. Yeah. Uh, he was saying that he was like the second coming of Picasso or something like that. He just kind of thought he had maybe a little bit of talent in his thumbs and he wanted to be a little proud of that. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong to wanting to show your work and standing for what you believe in, even if it's not like the best thing ever. Yeah. And like, you still like <laughs> Maurice starts to tear him down just because he didn't have the best technical skills. Like that's, that's so cruel. There's no shame shame in paint by numbers. I mean, I can understand. I imagine like, I've never done it, but like you can learn a lot about painting just by painting by numbers. Uh, There's going to be the critics that say like, oh, that's not creative work. That's just like following a, a rubric, but uh, at a certain point, maybe you can make the criticism like, okay, hey, maybe you should move on. Like it's time you've gotten this far. You don't have to continue painting by numbers. Um, but to Holling, I think it's just a pastime that he enjoys. And uh, just because it is by a rubric doesn't mean that there is no creative talent or process in it. Um, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, even if, yeah, it's just not a friendly thing to, <laughs> even if you don't like paint by numbers or if you just didn't like the painting, like don't don't like crush your friend if he's like proud of like don't crush hauling if he's proud of it come on yeah (laughs) it's something that it's like i don't know it's so much more cruel than (laughs) making fun of someone's uh like personality or something because those are kind of like things in which like you're born with right and i'm not saying that's not cruel (laughs) like it's absolutely messed up but in terms of things like this there there are talents that you're trying to develop things that you work on things that you build from the ground up. And when you go and tear someone down for those skills, it really hurts at like a really core level. I think that's, yeah. that's why I, I look at that and I'm like, God, it's so messed up. It's like really, really wrong. Yeah. Hauling's very vulnerable here. Yeah. So, uh, but okay. So we go to Chris's lesson, I think is the next scene, which is uh, sort of like in this basement furnace i'm assuming the basement of the brick and chris suggests to hauling well he tells hauling he has to burn the painting in the furnace he says it stopped being your painting the moment you finished it and he um talks about this practice uh, of native american sand sculptors who they create art by you know dripping different colors of sand to create like a sculpture or a painting with these different colored sand granules. And when they have the finished picture, all of these colors and all of these grains of sand coming together to form an image, uh, when the art is complete, they scatter it to the wind. 
And uh, that form of destruction, I guess, is sort of empowering or a, rec uh, a recognition of the fact that it's about the process, not the end product. And um, Holling is like, well, okay, Chris, why don't you, can you, can you burn the painting? And, and Chris says, no, you've got to do it yourself. And he does, um, but I'm not really sure what it does for Holling to, to have burned the painting. He just kind of uh, <laughs> walks away at the end. Right. So what Chris was trying to say is like there's a ephemerality to art mm -hmm. that in his opinion, it's captured most strongly whenever it resonates within us. And then that feeling is what keeps us going. Not like the physical piece of thing that you're looking at, whether it's the sandcastle or the painting right there. In a way, he is kind of right that like it stops being your painting the moment you finish it. Like oftentimes when you write a book, um, when you finish it, then the book kind of belongs to the reader in a way. There is interpretations that they can dig into it. There is ideas of where you think the characters will end up in the future, uh, things of that nature. So he is kind of presenting something that like, I think is correct. Maybe other people don't necessarily subscribe to that belief, but yeah, he also has like a very hard line thing of saying like, it's all process, no end result. Yeah. And as we said before, I think the proper adjustment, at least for hauling, is to kind of recognize the process, but also, you know, marry that with the product. Uh, well, I guess what I'm getting at is I think the next time we see hauling is he's back at Painting by the Numbers and he's talking with Shelley. Uh, I, we didn't mention this before, but it's pretty cool that Holling does all the paintings while he's got um, Miranda sort of in the, um, I don't know what you call this. It's only from like that movie Knocked Up where they make the jokes about the Baby Bjorn. I'm sure there's a name for it, but Baby Bjorn, I think is a brand. You know what I'm talking about? Like this little baby, mm, this like vest that holds a baby in it. Yeah. Isn't that just Bjorn. called like a sling? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, he's got the nice little sort of like vest that holds baby Miranda and he's painting paint by the numbers once again. And he explains to Shelly that um, this painting that he's doing is for Walt. And he's going to, after this, he's going to work on another one for Lowell Grippo. So he's got an audience now. Uh, so it is now about the product. Um, but what Holling says here is, uh, according to Chris, it's all in the doing. But Holling says, to tell you the truth, I think there's a lot to be said for the having. So it, it, it ends up that Holling prefers the finished product uh, as it comes together sort of all in the end here. And I think Paint by Numbers is kind of a, um, a really good example for this episode to kind of use as, you know, to explore these themes because Paint by Numbers is a process. It's a process of like picking the color and assigning it to the numbers, but it's not until like it all comes together in the end when it becomes a piece of art, like a finished work. Uh, it's before that, it's just a bunch of numbers and some outlines. Not until you fill all the colors in does it actually come alive. And so it's a great, I think it's a great example of doing the process and coming out with a product. Right. Well said right there. It's not like a celebration of mediocrity right here. Just like in the other plot line with Ruth Ann and the motorcyclist, you decide to return back to mm -hmm. like a quote unquote middle-class life. It's not necessarily the wrong path. And for hauling, 
uh, the approach that he takes of saying that like I would like to prefer to have the RPs, that's not necessarily <laughs> wrong either. Again, if it looks blue to you, then anything can be blue. And if it this is the approach that floats your boat, then you know all the more power to you. Right. And yeah, something about it tells me that uh, Holling learned a, a pretty valuable lesson, but he has his own as well, his own sort of philosophy or his own um, desires and wants and needs when it comes to painting. So he has sort of a happy ending here with uh, um, he's found an audience that he gets to paint for other people, not just for himself uh, with the product. Uh, but yeah, that's the wrap up of hauling. Let's dive into Joel and uh, his fishing in this episode, the fish story. And that's where Joel actually catches a fish. Something's nibbling on the line right there. And he remarks, I was like, whoa, like there's something like really odd with this fish <laughs> like it is really pulling me down like a submarine and that's when we get into that scene with chris at k-bear and he's talking about this uh old goonie how long it's been here and all of the you know just like the legend surrounding this animal right he says goonie let's see first modern sightings were back in 1931 and it's been popping up every 15 years since then just about that's this landlocked sturgeon creature that may have been trapped in a glacier. I don't know. There's a lot of like mythology around this. I think even at, at one point, Ed says to Joel, like sturgeon can get up to a thousand pounds maybe. So it's possible that Goonie is that large at this point. But yeah, I also loved earlier in this episode, Charles, when you were talking about how this fish could be a perfect allegory for something like trapped in the past, as you know, it's already mentioned here that Goonie like might have been this prehistoric creature that was trapped in a glacier. So like the past trapped in ice. But it's kind of becoming a town sensation now because all of the townsfolk are like gathered around the lake and the docks. They've got their binoculars and Ed is walking around with the radio boombox like broadcasting uh, Chris's like, you know, K-Bear address here. Oh, I also wrote down, I thought this was pretty cool. He said that, um, you know, we're talking about the sturgeon being like a thousand pounds. Ed says that Uncle Anku used to use oxen to haul sturgeon out of the river. So he'd have to get like a, a team of oxen to uh, fish this <laughs> fish this sturgeon out of the water. Yeah, this is such a cool scene also because it goes into this sequence where uh, we learn that Walt, you know, apparently fought Goonie for seven hours. This is like back in 1968. Uh, so Walt was like the last, you know, I guess fisherman maybe alive right now that, that uh, encountered Goonie and... You know, Walt is there and there's this great sequence of like they're suiting up Joel and Walt is sort of talking him through it. And he's got they took this um, flag holder that they used and they fashioned it into a leather belt so that he can uh, Joel can put the fishing rod into this leather belt. And this all happens like in one take, like Walt is describing this and he's like, here, hand your hand your fishing pole over to Jerry over there. Let me give you this belt. And then when the belt is strapped on, Jerry hands back the fishing pole. Now it's like a, an even heavier pole. He spliced Joel's like fishing line onto like a heavy duty ratcheting pole. And uh, Walt is like, all right, you're going to be in for the fight of your life, but I'll be here like the whole time. So if you need anything, just holler or something like that. Right. I think it's a great shot because we see the front of Joel's face mm. and you see the background, which is the pier and you see all these trucks that are parked. Uh, the screen is very populated. Mm -hmm. The layouts are really nice right here. And then it flips 
right when Walt says, like, I'm going to be with you right here. You know, the town is behind you. And then the camera flips and we see Joel alone in the chair, just looking out into the vast lake, just him in his chair and his little rod right here. And it's to reflect that, like, he's going on this journey by himself. Right. Like, that is what's about to happen. Yeah. Great little juxtaposition of, like, one angle to the next. And we lead in next to, uh, you know, coming out of commercial break later, Joel is still sitting with his fishing pole. Um, oh, actually, that was literally, that's all it is. It's just like a quick shot of Joel. He's still sitting there. <laughs> and then it goes to like hauling, doing his uh, paint by number stuff. So we just get like little interstitial things of Joel sitting with his fishing pole this whole time. But we get a proper scene with uh, Joel at nighttime now. It's like really dark out there. And Joel's still sitting there, like he's been there all day, I guess, since morning. And the fishing line starts going crazy. So he immediately calls out for Walt, who I think is like waiting in his pickup truck nearby. Turns out Walt is fast asleep. So Joel keeps screaming for Walt and the fishing line just keeps getting pulled. So I think, I don't know if this is, I'm assuming this is not a smart move, but Joel decides to abandon like the seat that they had fashioned uh, he's still got the pole, but he hops into like a rowboat and the rowboat is now being pulled out from shore by um, by this giant goonie, I'm assuming, uh, pulled out from shore deep into the fog of the night. Uh, and it's like going on a journey now with this fish. Right. I think it's important to note that like both Ruth Ann and Joel kind of leave yeah. on a vehicle. Uh, Ruth Ann leaves on a motorcycle and Joel leaves on a boat. They're both literally and figuratively going on a journey with these uh, transportation devices right here. Right. Uh, And there's some talk about um, later in the episode about like neglecting a responsibility. And I also thought about Ruthann here as well. Another way she ties in, she has like a, you could say she has a responsibility, uh, Maurice would say, as like a public servant to serve the town that she's uh, abandoning. Uh, but we'll get there because uh, right now Joel is getting pulled out um, to the, I guess, the middle of the lake or something. When we return to him, he's just sitting there idle and assuming he's been there for quite some time again, except now he doesn't have the shore and people to bring him salami sandwiches. Like he's just stuck out in the middle of this water, still attached to this fishing line. And he's, he kind of talks out loud to the fish. He's like, look, if you take me home, I promise I'm going to cut the line. As soon as we get there, just like get me back to shore. Uh, when all of a sudden the, the line starts pulling again and crawling on to the boat, I guess crawling up the fishing line onto the boat is Rabbi Shulman. This man sort of dressed in a suit, uh, this older Jewish man, Rabbi Shulman, that Joel is just like, wait, what are you doing here? What's going on? And of course, it's just like, you know, this is Northern Exposure doing its doing its thing, you know? Right. Doing the surrealism. <laughs> and here. it doesn't even try to acknowledge it, like how strange <laughs> yeah. this is, because it knows. It knows that it's strange. It doesn't have yeah. to feed into the, you know, give like some expositional dialogue being like, what's good? This can't possibly be happening. You're, how are you below the lake? It's like, no, they just, they just go forward with it. You just have the idea. Trust your audience isn't like, you know, can play along with things and then go forward right here. And it's a really nice piece of dialogue that's going on here because they're alone on the boat. It's being lit by just 
literally just them in the middle of this lake. And they're talking about the times be gone. Um, Rabbi is saying like how the church is trying to replace them because there's this new up and comer, Emily, who is much more cutting edge. She's yeah. a person that wants to have more inclusive language in the the scripts that they worship. She wants it to remove gender. Yeah. I think, well, I just wanted to b- bump in. I think it's funny how he's like, he can't say, um, <sighs> crap, I don't have the quote. What does he say? He says like, you can't say things like blessed be his name. Now you have to say blessed be his or her name uh, or blessed be Adonai's name. Honestly, I don't think they've ever, I don't think anyone's ever worded it like that. They always, it's always like blessed be thy name, right? That's how I've heard it. Yeah, that's how I've heard it too. It's too, clunky, it's too clunky to say his or her. It just doesn't sound as, I don't know. But anyway, so I just <laughs> just thought that was interesting. <laughs> but it is, I, I want you to continue. I think it is interesting that they're talking about like gender and uh, this gender neutrality. Um, and this, as you're saying, Charles, will let you continue about how it's sort of like a cutting edge versus um, Rabbi Shulman's like previous style. Right. And like the rabbi is a dinosaur of his time. He's just mm-hmm. like that fish. He's been down there so long that he's lost what things are up on the surface right there. In a way, I don't think he's like totally wrong. So what I mean by that is like I was uh I was driving like a couple weeks ago in in this church that me and you would both know. It's off of like this very common street that you would traverse in our hometown. The church had actually changed its sign. Like, I remember it had this sign for, like, the longest time. It was just, like, a standard, you know, one of those things where you put the letters on it to, like, spell out a message. Like a marquee? Yeah, kind of like that. And it was, um, you know, just like a classical thing right there. And then they changed it to be, like, a very trendy. digital readout. Right. No, 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 not even oh, that. Okay. It's like, it's a minimalistic thing. Like it's trendy. Like it looked at that, like I was about to sit on one of those iron stools and it, it feels like one of those like restaurants, like those fancy new ones that you go into <laughs> and they serve you like gastro, uh, pub fusion food. With like the, the, um, exposed light bulbs, like the yes. Edison bulbs. <laughs> yeah. They got like the, the Edison bulbs chairs, and like it's got saying. the little metal chairs and it's like, you read the menu and then like, it, they take like 50 words to describe French fries or nachos. <laughs> <laughs> and it felt like one of those. And I was like, you don't need to do that. You're the church. Like I want you to be very to be grounded. Classic. Yeah. I, I want you to be grounded, but also like progressive in your views. Like, I don't want you to like be progressive in your outside appearance and be Mm. very, very conservative in your views. Like you're going the opposite, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I thought I was like, all right. So I got to get where, um, this rabbi is coming from, from that degree. Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, I think it's interesting that it seems like the rabbi is like, well, I could probably be more open-minded, you know, but uh, I don't think he's, I don't think he is open-minded enough still, but he is like, you know, there's room for him to like accept the error of his ways or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's like a big thing to ask for, especially in 1994 (laughs) for that type of thing. I mean, shoot, we're still arguing over that, like in the year of our Lord 2022. So like, I understand like, you know, where he's coming from at that particular moment of time right there. But still, it doesn't matter because at the end, we can see that the the church wants to go for something much more cutting edge. So it puts the rabbi into this old age thinking. Yeah. And so Rabbi Shulman, he says he's been assigned um, as 
rabbi emeritus now, which uh, if you're not familiar with the term emeritus, meaning having retired, but allowed to retain your title as an honor. So he's like an honorary rabbi for this uh, synagogue and this new cutting edge is sort of, uh, they want to go with that as their, as their leader. And uh, I find this really funny because like, so when Joel pulls you know, when, when Rabbi climbs onto the boat and Joel's like fishing him out of the water, it's like, uh, what's going on? Like, why, why are you here? Where, how'd you get here? And the rabbi's like, oh, it's like, I'm doing my search for, uh, for guidance or sorry. It's like, I'm, I'm like looking for something like the Lord has brought me this way. And he goes on this long, uh, explanation of like, this is what's going on in my life with like the cutting edge woman. And, uh, you know, I'm being assigned rabbi emeritus now, like kind of demoted in my, in my view. And like, he gives this whole, you know, spiel about that. And then Joel's like, wait, wait, so what are you, what are you doing here? Like, why are you in this lake? (laughs) He's just like, yeah, looking for guidance, he says. And uh, he's like, Rabbi, you're in Alaska. Like what's going on? I think that's probably like, they don't really, as you said, they don't need to like really explain it. And the show doesn't, I think they kind of like fade out at that point. Right. Or cut to the next scene or something. Yeah, they cut to the next scene, which is where like Joel's thinking about cutting the line. But oh, then yeah. the rabbi says like, no, 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 don't cut the line. I think we're onto something really big right here. And I think there's like a lot of ways to read into this line. But like one way could be like, he doesn't want to cut the line because he wants to remain connected with this thing that's from the past. He wants to remain in his old ways. But also like, I don't, it's not like necessarily like a cynical view that this uh, rabbi is trying to say, because he's saying that like, this could be something big. Like maybe it could lead to some new discovery right here. If we remain connected to help us go forward. So I feel like there's a lot of ways to be reading into this particular line of clinging onto the, into the fishing pole right here. But all of that doesn't really matter because what happens is that the fish kind of just capsizes <laughs> the boat and swallows them whole. Yeah. Uh, well, so I want to talk a little bit about this scene here because I, I agree. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's interesting that they, you know, that the rabbi is like, oh, no, this uh, I, I like that he says uh, this could be like our closest connection to God that you know, that we can call for, like in this time and age or whatever. Uh, he suggests the story of Jonah and then apparently like Christianity before, before the cross was like the symbol of Christianity, apparently the fish was the symbol for Christianity. So I thought that was interesting, but yeah, whether or not I like your interpretation of, um, how like this is maybe the rabbi saying uh, subtextually like clinging to the past still by clinging on to this ancient fish. I think it's also just a, you know, they can't cut the line yet because we want to, we got to get to this next part where they get swallowed by this fish. Uh, but before, actually before they do get swallowed by the fish, um, Rabbi asks Joel about his life and they talk about Maggie and they talk about Passover and Joel, you know, pretty pretty succinctly basically says like it makes him uncomfortable that Maggie wants to do this Passover Seder. And the rabbi's like, why? Like, it sounds great. And Joel doesn't know why. Like, he's he's like, I don't know. Uh, There's just, I don't know. It's like, they he still needs to work that out. Right. But I guess we haven't gotten there yet because first they must get swallowed by the fish. It's a pretty cool sequence. Yeah, like the, you know, the line goes slack. So it suggests that... Um, you know, the, uh, the fish got away, but in fact, it's coming nearer. 
And like they sort of rise up towards the top of the frame as like, you know, the water is pushing them up and obviously probably some stunt doubles, but they, there's a couple quick shots of like each of them flying out of the boat and uh, the boat kind of flipping. It's, it's pretty tight. Right. <laughs> the next transition cut is really sweet in my opinion because it's in complete pitch black darkness and then Joel has a flame and he lights it. Mm-hmm. And then like that illuminates the whole screen right there. And it reveals that like they're inside the belly of the fish. I don't know if there's like any particular reason why the belly of the fish would be red other than like the straightforward explanation is that like, you know, yeah, blood it's internal. Like, yeah, it's inside yeah. <laughs> the body, I think, like a magic school bus style or something. Right. I, I love that. Um, I love the set that they're in. Like you're saying, it's sort of a glowy, dim red, but we see sort of like the spine of the fish, maybe, or you see like a backbone with like ribs, maybe. And the design of the sound here is really cool because it kind of sounds like wind blowing through a cavernous space and like a heartbeat kind of going steady. Um, yeah, I really love this set that, you know, it's probably, um, they probably reuse like a, a, a portion, like a, a one set very many ways and just kind of like add new, um, new like furnitures and things to, uh, to change it up. But they're probably like in the same area for most of this, uh, sequence. Oh yeah, definitely. They find a lot of old artifacts from their time. They don't question it. They're just like, oh, yeah. shoot, like this is like the baseball I had when I was a kid. Or like, you know, these are all the, these all various items that have somehow like sunk into the bottom of the lake and are now surfacing again mm-hmm. with this fish right here. Uh, the rabbi remarks to like, this is really similar to like two things. It's similar to Pinocchio yeah. <laughs> where they get swallowed by the whale. And it's also similar to that story with Jonah whenever he was trying to avoid responsibility and he also gets swallowed by the well right there. Yeah. What I find really great is that Joel says like, okay, there's two ways that we can get out of this. One is through the mouth and one is through the bottom. But <laughs> if you go through the mouth, you're going to have to go through the teeth. So what I suggest is that we actually go through with the bottom. I think that subtextually, it means that like, instead of returning back to where he came from, like the past, you just finish the journey out. Go through. Beginning yeah. to end. Right. <laughs> go down he's river, like, yeah. It's like time to go through the fish go through the other end right there. And I think like, <laughs> that's great right there. Yeah, yeah that is a, because they make it as, you know, there's this whole dialogue. They have to make a choice. Do we go through the mouth or through the bottom? And it is important that they choose to go through the bottom, I guess, but they have, they have like mechanical reasons written into the story, but we could say uh, subtextually there is the, a meaning there that, you know, we have to see it through, see the course. And uh, just a quick, if, if you don't know the story of Jonah, I think he was like, uh, God was like talking to Jonah. This is what the rabbi says. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and cry out against the wickedness there. Instead, Jonah sort of like skips town and goes to Tarshish instead. And I guess the Lord was tracking him down. And uh, as the rabbi says, raises a ruckus and Jonah gives the heave ho, like tossed into the water, swallowed into the belly of the fish. What's the meaning behind all this, says the rabbi? He says, responsibility. You know, you have a responsibility, or Jonah has a responsibility. And this is what I was saying. I think Ruthann, maybe you could also say, is avoiding a responsibility in her own way. There's some really cool... I mean, I already talked about how much I like the f- the set and the feeling of this space. But also there's some really cool moments where they're kind of slowly meandering through this space and like it fades to black and it gets completely black 
and then it fades back in from black to picture. And it's just the same shot. Like they don't change angles, but it's just like it goes dark and then it comes back again. It just has this interesting like quality of darkening and coming back. And at first I was like, oh, is this like a commercial break? I'm pretty sure it's not a commercial break because there's still audio, like the sound of the, like the cavern sounds and the heartbeats, I think is still going through that transition. I just thought it was an interesting choice to do that. I don't think, I don't know if there's any like story reason or maybe they just had to, I guess the, the uh, necessity could be that they had to cut two different shots together, but it seems mostly, or like two different takes together of the same shot, but it seems pretty similar. Um, It's pretty good. Yeah, I would agree. It's definitely not cutting to commercial. Like yeah. there's some sort of like reason that they're doing this. I don't think what you said, uh, the ability to combine two different shots and to, you know, seamlessly mm-hmm. transition probably makes the most sense right yeah. there. I would agree. But it makes a, makes for a cool effect regardless, even if it feels like a little odd. Yeah. You might as well take advantage of the fact <laughs> that you're inside the fish. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I think it's good that they're doing this. I think these are all wise choices. And of course, like it gets more and more surreal as they travel down into the fish where they arrive at some turnstiles right here. And mm-hmm. Joel has like a little bit of money and he lends the cash to the rabbi. So the rabbi can pay the turnstile and Joel's just going to jump the turnstile right there. And then mm-hmm. the camera shifts a little bit more to the right, and it reveals that it was completely free. Like, Joel could have just walked to the right of it. But Joel still subscribes to the rules. Oh, wow. By he's breaking them. I totally missed that. I didn't notice that shot. Like, I, I did not see that. That's awesome, though. I think that's such an interesting thing to say right there. Yeah. That Joel is still following through. Like he's still subscribing to the rules and regulations of uh, this universe, this fish's belly, that there's a turnstile right here. You either have to pay it or you jump it. Mm-hmm. You don't, but don't break the rules right there. <laughs> like of that regard, of that, like, you can reality. break it within. Yeah. yeah, you can break the rules of the turnstile, but not the entire thing. I think that's, <laughs> I'm not too sure what it's trying to say right there. I guess it's just like in a way where it's like you can deviate from the path. Like there's a lot of ways to deviate from it. Hmm. Yeah, maybe so. It's a, it is an interesting, it's a cool thing. Uh, no, I didn't notice that, that there was that opening. But yeah, I, this all obviously takes us to, you know, a sort of like a subway set where, you know, they're making their way through the fish. And once again, Joel and Rabbi Shulman are kind of sitting by each other. And at this point now, we make the connection or the rabbi makes the connection that, this Passover Seder with Maggie is Joel's Nineveh. It's like what God is instructing Joel to do. And, you know, Passover should be something that is more like communal. Um, we don't, they don't really go into this whole, like they don't talk about like what the story of Passover is really, or like if there are any messages. But I think we get towards the end of the episode, this idea, um, especially with the closing monologue, which I guess we'll get to, um, just the fact that this like is something that should be shared maybe with everyone. Um, I think this is like for Joel, his responsibility, not only to share this Passover with Maggie and his friends, I think uh, Rabbi also says, like, by denying the Passover, it's denying Maggie's intimacy. Like, that's more of the relationship counseling side of the rabbi, I guess. Right. And it's also saying that how there isn't, like, 
you know, the times, they are a change and there's no one direct way. So he <laughs> asked him and says like, you know, the cutting edge part of me says to like, you should just accept it and find love where you can find it. That's a very forward way of thinking. But then he says like, but then the traditional part of me says like, you should find yourself a nice Jewish girl. <laughs> you shouldn't be excusing what's been done for hundreds and thousands of years before. And he says, we live in a very confusing time. Here we are, as close to the Almighty as we're liable to get in this life, and still there's no clarity. <laughs> so it kind of suggests that like, you just kind of want to see the journey to the end. You, you, you kind of can get stuck in your old ways, but the other path is like, you can move forward from there. And like, them returning back to the old ways doesn't really get them out of anything. He says like, this is as close as we're ever going to get to the Lord. Like, to the year zero. Yeah. Of like, you know, probably the, <laughs> the strongest in which you could have had, you know, religious beliefs. Right. And yet, it doesn't help them. Right. So, saying so like, you know, just continue down the path in however way that you can see fit. Yeah, I like that a lot. And the, the subway train now begins to start moving. And so we're, you know, we're getting closer to exiting the fish. I think we just like cut to the next scene or there's a commercial break. But the next time we see Joel is actually the townsfolk are now looking for Joel. I'm guessing it's the next morning because it's uh, daylight now. And Holling and Chris are analyzing like this wreckage of the rowboat. It's smashed to pieces. Chris finds near this wreckage a ticket to Shea Stadium. So yeah, something I guess from the past, obviously as well. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. Like all the townsfolk are, it's another one of those shots where we get a lot of action going on. Like everyone's kind of there looking around. And Joel is uh, eventually found near the water's edge. He's passed out face down in the grass. Uh, no, no sign of the rabbi, but you know, I think it's like Shelly, Holling, Chris, Marilyn. I'm like thinking like, who's all there, but they all like come to find him. Right. And Joel's saying like the fish brought him, like that is where his journey ends up. Mm. Uh, <laughs> in a way it, it really does. I, I don't want to like go back on what I said, but okay. like <laughs> it kind of does go like the lake is different than a river. Like a river mm -hmm. goes from like, it flows from one end to the end. Mm -hmm. And then, like, that's a journey. A lake is, you know, trapped. Landlocked, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's landlocked. It doesn't have anywhere else to go. And all those old memories surface up. They bubble up from the bottom and all the way up to the surface right there, that old shade ticket and everything. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of still move within it. And Joel has this self-discovery within himself now that he's been through the fish. Mm -hmm. Even though, they're, like, the lake doesn't offer, like, another alternative route right there. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's kind of poignant. In my opinion. Because uh, you're saying like you can find sort of like a journey within a closed off space or something? Yeah. I wish I would have explored this idea from the beginning. Mm. Like, like tried <laughs> to analyze it from there, but I'm just not realizing the like. Ruth Ann is closed off in her like lifestyle that, you know, even still can teach her, teach her lessons and find her journey there, I guess. Right. This, it's just a lot to chew on. And mm. Sorry. And hauling is like closed off by... You know, paint by numbers is like literally like you have to put the, I mean, he, def, he definitely paints outside of the lines and chooses his own colors, but has a lot of ideas there of like finding freedom and journey and uh, lessons in sort of a closed environment. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, uh, you know, the subway 
it doesn't move until they realize that mm-hmm. until they like come right. into the idea that like okay then like maybe I should be more open to like what Emily is saying maybe I should be open to what Maggie is trying to do with the Passover dinner and then it starts going yeah then it starts going and it's important that the subway was stagnant and then it starts moving once they accept these new ideas right there kind of showing that like you know the movement comes from within not necessarily like an external thing and we see this all come into the conclusion, which is where they're finally having the Passover dinner. Joel is inviting more people into his traditional heritage. He's continuing it down, but with new people. Yeah, I love this. He's like leading the Seder and they all have... So Passover is like my favorite uh, Jewish holiday. The, the way it works is like you have a Seder, which involves the food that Maggie was talking about uh, earlier in the episode. Like at the very first scene, she wanted to throw this surprise Seder, but she talks about like cooking the Paschal lamb and doing these other things. Uh, But the way Passover Seder works is like you have uh, a Seder plate, which has different elements of food on it. And each item represents a part of, I guess, like the story of Passover or a theme of Passover. And you have what what's called a Haggadah, which is sort of like, in a way, like a prayer book or a sermon or something that sort of guides you through the story of Passover and through the Seder, this like ceremony where we talk about basically like Exodus from Egypt and, you know, uh, how we were all slaves in the land of Egypt and, uh, you know, Moses led us out to freedom. And there's, I mean, there's a lot that goes on uh, in the Passover ceremony, but this Haggadah book that they have uh, is the same exact one that we would use when I was growing up, uh, my congregation. I don't know what you would call it, but I did find it on like Amazon. Like basically it's the one with drawings by Leonard Baskin. And I do actually like, I like the text a lot in this Haggadah, but the drawings are really what make it um, so just burned into my psyche. These are some scary, very creepy drawings. <laughs> like I'm going to show, I'll put it in the episode description, but let me see if I can find you some right now, Charles. But the only way I can describe it just over radio is um, it's like watercolor, but very smeary. And it's just, it's uh, on top of that, the only thing I can say is like creepy and odd and strange. Let's see. I'll send you just like Leonard Baskin, Haggadah, Google image search. But here, I'm going to show you this one, actually. It's just like a picture of a goat with some Hebrew text. Even that is terrifying. It's not spo- It's not trying to be scary, but this one's just like creepy looking. <laughs> <laughs> it's odd, right? It's kind of weird. It does not look like a goat. That is not. <laughs> <laughs> or it should be a kid, I think, like a baby goat or a baby. No, if you look at that. It's like an like, alien creature. <laughs> that's like kind of like a capybara, I guess. <laughs> I don't really, that's not, it doesn't even have ears, man. (laughs) This one's good to you here. Sorry. This is, I'm showing now that I guess this is the picture for the four questions. I'm not, I can't remember exactly. It's basically like a man with four faces and they're all scary. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) And they're They're encircled with like this crazy Hebrew script that just looks like demonic language or something i'm not trying i'm just saying it looks weird yeah i think it's because it's like (laughs) i think it's the language that makes it scary like maybe if it was uh in a vacuum by itself it wouldn't look this uh this terrifying but yeah (laughs) encircled by this um foreign script yeah it's definitely gonna 
do some damage to some kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hold on. I'm going to see if I can play the like closing soundbite. I know there's a little bit of music. Let me see what happens. Okay, so there is like a little bit of music piping in underneath, but I'll just read. Uh, this is like when they're doing the Passover Seder. Marilyn has just talked about uh, the carpus, the you know the parsley dipped in salt, and now Maggie's going to read about the matzah, which is like that stale kind of cracker bread. Uh, she says, "Behold, the bread of affliction our ancestors ate when we were slaves in the land of Egypt. Let it remind us of people everywhere who are poor and hungry." Let it call to our minds people today who are still enslaved and without freedom. May all in need come and celebrate Passover with us. May God redeem us from all servitude and trouble. Next year at this season, may the whole house of Israel be free and may all people enjoy liberty, justice, and peace. And yeah, so this is sort of like inviting and reminding like this is this Passover celebration should be shared with all. And um, something that I always loved about they kind of mention it here a little bit, but in, I think it's in this Haggadah or uh, I'm not sure, but we would always do like every, at the end of every Passover Seder, it would be like, you'd say like next year in Jerusalem. And that could literally mean like, okay, next year we're going to go to Jerusalem and be in our promised land or whatever. But I always kind of took it as like a figurative meaning as well, where like next year, you know, we'll all be in this, it, it could be more figurative, not this actual you know, land of Jerusalem, but, you know, we're all in this place where we want to approach a freedom, you know, what, the, what they talk about here, liberty, justice, and peace. Like May next year, we can reach that, you know? Mm, okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But you know, this is a, uh, I'm glad we got a Passover episode, you know, we're all the way in season five. It's one of my favorite uh, Jewish holidays. And with the, with the central character, Joel Fleischman here. I'm glad we got to have a little Passover episode. There's, um, we've talked about this before, Charles, like holiday episodes of, of television shows. Cause we, we did like, um, you know, there, there is like a Thanksgiving episode of Northern Exposure. There's sort of a Christmassy one, but, uh, yeah, do you, I know there's like a really good Passover episode for the Rugrats. That's like such a good episode of, of television. <laughs> uh, but do you know any Passover episodes? That come to mind. I don't know. That's kind of the only other one I can think of. Really, uh, I'm sure there are more. I, no, I'm like 100 sure there are. It's not off the top <laughs> of my mind. Let me see. Is, does the West Wing just... have any Passover? I don't know. Um, there is like does. the Christmassy one. The, they do have. Um, let me see. The Yom Kippur episode. Oh yeah, yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. And I can't think of like I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a Yom Kippur episode of television. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of other Passover episodes. Um, well, now we got this one, at least. We got another Northern Exposure. What happens if we just type that in? I'm just like, yeah, okay, I'm sure. Let's, yeah, let's let's Passover tele- oh, quite a lot. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, okay. So get this out. All right. So Sesame Street, it's Passover ah. Grover 2011. Family Guy has one called Family Goy, 2009. <laughs> the OC, The Nana from 2004. Homeland, Why Is This Night Different, 2013. Sports Night, April yeah, is the cruelest month. Transparent, nice. exciting and new, high maintenance, Elijah, oh, cool. Gossip Girl, Cedar Anything, Difficult People, Passover Bump, Rugrats, Passover. Yeah. So that's the second one. That's the second yeah. most popular one. And the mm. top one would be Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Cedar. I'm a little, I'm a little bit miffed that Northern Exposure does not make this. This is the Vulture list. This is the Vulture yeah. list. I, I like that Curb Your Enthusiasm listing though, but um, 
Yeah, dang. And you know, didn't Vulture Vulture Fest had like the cast of Northern Exposure on uh, maybe like a year or so ago? Um, like the casting, some of the you know producers like reunion, which like I don't know if we'll ever be able to see that footage because it was uh, I think they sh- they released some clips of it, but it was like only available if you had a ticket to Vulture Fest, and then also like. It's just going to live, you know, I don't, maybe they'll release it at some point, but I don't know. They do have it in the, in the Wikipedia article, um, (laughs) Passover television episodes. Uh, there isn't a lot. There's only one, two, there's only 14 of them. Okay. And that vulture list at 12, I want to say, like 11. So like pretty much like. <laughs> pretty well, I see like one here. Holy crap. I see one called Jupacabra. Like, like, <laughs> that's got to be South Park. Oh, it's South it Park. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, my knew. God. I was like, that's got to be that. So, but I mean, one of the, like, there's only 14. I think Northern Exposure could have stepped up a little higher on that list. Oh, you know, so we should mention the very last shot of this episode as Maggie is reading this uh, Haggadah. It's of the lake with like the moonlight reflected off of it. So we get a callback. I even think it's kind of dark, but I even think you can kind of see like the seat that Joel was using in the foreground with mm-hmm. like the lake in the background, like the, the fishing seat. But yeah, nice and tranquil. We have like this tranquil music playing and Maggie's uh, Maggie's reading here from the passage here. All right, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, usually someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before, and we get their sort of um, fish-out-of-water experience watching the show. We're also expanding the reach of Northern Exposure by introducing the show to someone new each episode. But today is a very special day because uh, when I'm recording this, it's my birthday, Charles. I'm sure you know. Unfortunately, you could not be here to celebrate because we live in uh, we live in different cities. But um, I have wrangled my birthday party into watching Northern Exposure on my birthday, and they're watching today's episode. And a lot of these people have actually already been on the podcast, so you may recognize their voices. I'm going to keep it anonymous. Um, I get, of course, I can't, I can't stop them from saying, hello, my name is, if they want to say that. But anyway, we've got a, a room full of people who just watched uh, season five, episode 18, Fish Story. And um, yeah, I'm just going to pass it around the room and get a general reaction what did you guys think of the episode? This is a directional microphone, so it'll kind of be one by one, but you know, whatever. All no holds barred. Let's just talk about it. I mean, I don't know if this is like like really broadly speaking of the episode, but I was kind of shocked when he told me at the beginning that this was the demarcation point where like David Chase came in. And I found that to be really interesting, but I have to say it made sense because this was like a dream episode, which is like very, very reminiscent of like dream episodes that J- David Chase has done in like uh, Sopranos. Like it actually made sense as I was watching it. And like I had no idea he was the showrunner at this point in the season, but it it, it felt like very much of a piece to me. Right. So we have a lot of uh, Sopranos fans in the room. And uh, I feel like we were a, a lot. A lot of our conversation while watching the episode was about David Chase. I can see some people in the room wanting to talk about this. Uh, go ahead. Well, I, I, I don't have much to say about Sopranos. I was just going to say that when I was what occurred to me when I was watching this episode and I, I had to ask because I've only seen two episodes of Northern Exposure. And as we were watching it, I was like, is there always a supernatural element in every episode? Because the episode that I watched when I was on the show was a supernatural 
element. So I, it's just interesting to sort of get bits and pieces of what this show is, because if I, I definitely got like Twin Peaks vibes the first time that I watched it. Um, and you, I mean, you remember the episode that it was about the like the there was a little person in it who was like his sort of like self-esteem and was like his like inner critic. Yeah, you're referring to the uh, Ed's Green Man. Yes, yes, Ed's Green Man. So like that was my introduction to this show. So then to go into this and it be like a Loch Ness monster who is a rabbi with some wisdom to offer was very much on brand with the only other experience that I've had of this show. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the best Northern Exposure episodes are kind of supernatural in nature. Those are the ones that are at least the most flashy, I think, that people remember. Well, I was just going to say that I have to imagine this is not the only episode because I know at the very beginning, Brittany said, is this a monster episode? Which told me that there were multiple episodes <laughs> that were playing on monster themes. I just had already seen him watching this episode, so I knew that there was a monster ah. fish. Yeah. But are there more episodes yeah. with monsters, Charles? I'm thinking there's one with a, uh, a shape-shifting man who turns into a bear. Is um, there a, a creature feature element on Northern Exposure? You know, I don't really think there is, but I mean, so... As I just mentioned, there's an episode where a man sort of shapeshifts into a bear. There's an episode with Bigfoot, but then Bigfoot becomes a uh, character in the show. At first, the uh, most of the characters don't believe Joel that he's found Bigfoot. And then uh, it's a recurring character, so he does come back, Bigfoot. And it's just like, oh, this is Adam. He's the cook. He's like a chef. He's uh, this belligerent man. And people just accept it out of nowhere. And it's pretty great. But also a Sasquatch. I feel like that fact is actually... In the episode that he's introduced, they're like, he's the Sasquatch. But then every episode after that, they're just like, oh, yeah, he's Adam. You're he's right. The <laughs> cook. He's the cook. Yeah. It just, <laughs> they, it just. They don't, go, they don't go by like, they don't, they call him, do they call him a Yeti or like a, a skunk ape or like a Maytay? They call him like the missing link. They call him Bigfoot. So they have a couple different names for him, but they call him Adam as well. But it's just sort of like this myth um, that becomes. I guess a reality for the town. Adam, the original man, the monster. Adam, you're talking about like biblical Adam. <laughs> the, the, the real monster. The real monster. Frankenstein's monster. All right, I'm going to reel it back into the uh, episode that we watched tonight. What did you guys think about the sort of Ruth Ann biker plotline uh, when she's kind of going with the Diabolos? I just want to say that I hope at some point I get to a phase in my life where I'm an older single lady and people call me ma. Yeah, you were saying that when we were watching, it's like, they don't, you don't have to have any children, just like having the title of ma. Exactly, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term of endearment, it's a term of respect, you know, like that you're ma age. And then I have a question uh, for the the guests that arrived at the uh, the latest. So you've only seen like the latter end of the episode. Did you like the ending of the episode, or are there anything that you caught at the very end that um, that you like to speak about? Haley, it's Sam from the podcast Subtextual. I came in late, thinking that some of these mother would help me out, and I was 
wrong. <laughs> I am more confused now than when I entered. All I know is that I'm glad that I saw the end of this episode. I feel like I don't understand Jewish heritage, but that's fine. Um, I don't like the main guy. What's his name, Noel? Uh, Joel. Joel. I'm sorry, Joel. I don't like him any more than I liked him before, but I'm, I'm glad that he came out of the well or, or, or the whale the whale yeah uh, I appreciate you when we were watching the episode you were like I don't understand what's going on but I also don't want to be offensive to Jews so I'll just <laughs> assume that this is a Jewish heritage thing like we made jokes like this is you know my bar mitzvah was in the belly of a we're all having a we're having a crazy time now we've obviously imbibed a lot of alcohol uh, I think we can kind of wrap it up here so if there's any uh, closing comments. Maybe I can uh, go around and see if we have any uh, last thoughts about tonight's episode. Um, bikers are all bad. No. All bikers are All bad. bikers. No, bikers are all bad. <laughs> Not all bikers are bad, but bikers are all bad. Wait, how, how is that different? What? <laughs> Um, as a boy, as a boy meets world super fan, I recognize that one of the actors in this episode who was in the biker gang was featured on an episode of boy meets world. He was the employee in the, uh, camping store that the Matthews buy, I want to say circa season four or five. And I am not making this up. I am a Boy Meets World super fan, and my Boy Meets World super fan listeners will get that reference. His his little cousin Lonnie, he has take his place, and she's like a super hot blonde girl who has no boundaries. It's a great arc. Check it out. Boy Meets World. I want to say season five, <laughs> maybe four. All right, you heard it here first. Uh, crossover. Any other crossover from other shows that we recognized? I think we obviously Sex in the City. I, I just also want to say that I was very distracted this entire episode by how sexy John Corbett was, like with the facial hair and the long hair and the David Foster Wallace bandana. It was really working for me. Jack Cromit? I feel, no, John Corbett, I feel like we were all, uh, that was the talk of the town for the night. We were all talking about John Corbett, one of my favorite elements of Northern Exposure. I'm glad we could share it all here tonight on my birthday. Am I attracted to John Corbett? That can be a secret. Yeah, I think I think everyone should be attracted to John Corbett. Thank you for validating me there. All right. Happy birthday to me, Charles. I hope this wasn't too chaotic for you. And uh, I miss you, man. And I'll uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks, Charles. 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 All right. That was Lee and his merry gang of seven people. I want to say. I know that like there weren't seven people on the recording. But it seemed like there were a good number of people there that were just afraid to be put on recording. But yeah, otherwise, this is a very hard one to come into because it, it, it feels like that thing where you get called at like 1 a.m. and it's from your friend and then you hear like a bunch of people in the background as well. And they're like, oh, man, you got to come out. We, we need burgers. We need it now. And then, you know, you're, you're half asleep and you're like, what, what are you, what are you saying? And then they're, they're just screaming they're like burgers now come and pick us up. And you're like, 
all right. And you know, you're a good friend. So you're like, you know, get your keys, get dressed and you go out the door, uh, moon's still out and you go pick them up and everyone piles into your car and it's just like a ruckus being done in the back and everyone's having a great time because you know because they're going to like a new party they're going to do like a new thing for the night and uh you can't really join in on the conversation because there's like a lot of inside jokes that are going in through there that are just circulating throughout and you're just like oh yeah that's uh that sounds fun now that sounds great and then, and then you go get the burgers and then you drop them off and then you go back to bed and you're like all right well that would be something fun to talk about later in my life. So that's kind of how I feel right now. But that's not to say that, like, I disliked it. Not at all. This sounded, like, very fun for y'all to be there. Happy birthday again, Lee. Uh, let's talk about what they were talking about in that recording. So someone mentioned that it felt very David Chase Soprano-ish, which I am surprised by because when I think of Sopranos, I think of... uh Gabagool, and I think of uh, very firm, realistic, grounded sequences. I actually did not know there were a lot of dream sequences in there. That is very surprising to me. Another person mentioned that it was a very out there episode because the episode that they came in with was the Green Man episode. So for them to go from like Green Man episode to this episode, it was pretty appropriate. You know, it's par for the course. They're like, it was already strange to begin with. I see no reason to believe that it wouldn't be strange at all. Uh, someone mentioned that it was going to be like a monster of the week episode. And they were thinking like, well, have there been other monsters? The only thing that really comes to mind, and this is like barely related, but I'm thinking like maybe country music because they talk about its mythological properties, how it divides by a very binary good and evil. And, you know, that sounds kind of like a strange out there idea oh uh also jesse the bear i mean he's endowed with special properties right there were also talks of crossover episodes i can't think of any off the top of my head of course there's adam that goes on to play a lot of different characters especially the one that i always reference the one in the west wing the therapist uh john corbett's sex in the city that they mentioned oh they mentioned that john corbett was very sexy yeah, like a DFW look, which is like a very apt reference to use for what I'm assuming is a party of people in their late 20s, early 30s to be referencing DFW. It's right up there. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a very entertaining listen, and I hope that the listeners also enjoyed both that and this. All right. For next week, let me guess what the episode is going to be. First, got to look it up. Okay, the episode is called The Gift of the Maggie, which has got to be a play on Gift of the Magi, I imagine. Um, I'm going to guess that, like, Maggie tries to sacrifice something, uh, maybe of material value, in order to make Joel realize that it's the sentimental value that is more important. I'm just going straight along with the story that it's referencing. All right, this is me signing off. Hope to see you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. And thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.